0: Welcome to The
1: Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we hear the music from The River, made in 1984. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Hello, everybody. It's so great to have you here. Thank you very much for joining me. Before we start the discussion of the river, I want to share an email that was sent to me by a listener in Denmark, and his name is Suna Savandkier, and I hope I got his name right. Now, part of his email was to praise the podcast, and I'm really thankful for that. And he also spent some time to give me some criticisms, which I also appreciate, uh, namely that the show doesn't run as long as he really wants it to be. And I understand that. It's not the first time people have said that. But what really stood out for me was he took the time to really share what he calls his John Williams story. And it was quite lengthy, but I want to share uh, something here that he wrote about when he was a student in London. And apparently there was a John Williams concert that was going to be held in London when he was there. I had been an acting student of London's Guildhall School of Music and Drama the school that has fostered more famous actors than myself, such as Daniel Craig, Ewan McGregor, and Orlando Bloom, was and still is located in the Barbican Complex, the home of the LSO. And so on the day of the concert, I went to the LSO back entrance, showed my old student card, and asked the female guard if there was a rehearsal of tonight's concert in progress, and if there was, if I could slip downstairs and watch part of it. To my astonishment, she said yes, and thus I was allowed inside the inner sanctum of to this day at least, John Williams' fandom. I walked downstairs and crept guiltily along the walls of corridors I didn't know, feeling I had committed a crime. Against whom I didn't know. I had been given permission, after all. I followed the sound and suddenly entered the symphony hall quite close to the stage where John was in the process of conducting a piece of his. I don't recall which. There was a group of people sitting in the middle of the auditorium, possibly agents and managers and such, I avoided those and sat down in one of the front rows with what I had hoped was casual indifference, although I was bubbling over with joy on the inside. The piece ended, John gave the orchestra some notes, and they moved on to the next piece, which turned out to be the final 15 minutes of E.T. I sat through the whole thing, and it was, of course, tremendous. It was hard not to stand up and applaud afterwards, but as no one else did, I restrained myself. After that, it was announced that the orchestra would have a break, and I decided to leave as well. I considered approaching the big man, but ruled against it. I kind of felt I had my fill of good luck for one day and couldn't bear the thought of somehow ruining the wonderful experience I had just had. Looking back, I cannot imagine what could have gone wrong if I had walked up to him and said hello. But in the end, I got to meet him later that night. I snuck back out, happy and relieved that I hadn't been caught out. Since then, I've experienced John Williams' live four times at the Hollywood Bowl, the last time being two years ago when Steven Spielberg was hosting. But that is another story. So I told Suna to really treasure these moments when he got to meet John Williams. I have never met John Williams. It's obviously one of my life's goals. Don't know if it'll ever happen to me. And everybody who I know who has met John Williams, I told them to treasure that moment because it's, it's rare because not a lot of people get to do it. So... Thank you, Suna, for sharing your story, and I'm sure a lot of people who have been listening to that email said, why didn't you just go up and say hello? I'm very upset that you didn't do it, because I certainly would have. All right, so let's talk about the river. On the last episode, we talked about John Williams' score of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, as well as his composition for the 1984 Olympics, which we know as the Olympic Fanfare and Theme. While those were two very big moments for the maestro in 1984, it was nothing compared to what he went through that June. Williams was set to start his summer season with the Boston Pops Orchestra, where his Olympic music was going to make its world premiere on June 12, 1984. At the final rehearsal just a few hours before the concert, according to an article in the New York Times, quote, A few hisses reportedly came from orchestra players but such behavior is said to be common toward other composers' works at Pops rehearsals as an expression of opinion. The Times article did not say what piece of Williams's music sparked the reaction, but it was enough to put Williams over the edge. That night, Williams conducted the Boston Pops. After the concert, Williams met with leaders of the Boston Symphony and announced his resignation, saying he would finish his conducting duties through the week and be gone. The following morning, just before the Boston Pops made the announcement, Williams agreed to conduct all of his contracted concerts that summer, all the way through mid-July, even though he was under contract with the Boston Pops until the end of summer 1986. The New York Times article listed artistic and creative differences as the public reason for Williams' sudden departure. Performers who were interviewed for the Times article suggested that the musicians had repeatedly expressed disrespect in front of Williams, and it had been, quote, weighing on him for some time. After finishing out the season, Williams had a meeting with the board of directors of the BSO, as well as members of the musicians' union, and by the end of it, the orchestra still had their famous conductor and would keep him for nine more summers. I read an article that said the musicians were embarrassed by their behavior and promised a more professional atmosphere. Obviously, things really improved as Williams would use the orchestra to perform the score to Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan, and Williams would write several original concert pieces for the Boston Symphony Orchestra, one of which I will talk about later in this episode. Williams put the crazy drama surrounding his stint in Boston behind him when he returned to Los Angeles to conduct the orchestra at the Olympic opening ceremony. And he also had a new film project that was much different from the previous two films on which he worked. That project was The River, a drama about a Southern family faced with losing their farm after torrential rains almost flood their land and ruin their corn crop. The film's quieter flow might have been welcomed by Williams, but he was likely more excited to be reuniting with director Mark Rydell. Williams certainly owed a debt of gratitude to Rydell, Who hired Williams to write the score to the Reavers after rejecting Lalo Schifrin's score. That score set Williams on a career path that led him to his first original score Oscar nomination and a future collaboration with Steven Spielberg that would be very lucrative. After the Reavers, Williams and Rydell worked together on The Cowboys and Cinderella Liberty. A little more than 10 years after Cinderella Liberty, with Williams now the top composer in Hollywood, Rydell approached Williams for the chance to work on The River. Rydell wanted Williams to work on the wonderful film On Golden Pond, starring Katharine Hepburn and Henry Fonda, but Williams couldn't fit in the project between working on Raiders of the Lost Ark and Heartbeeps. Rydell got an Oscar-nominated score from Dave Grusin for On Golden Pond, though. But three years later, the schedule for The River fit perfectly into Williams' life. Filming for the river took place in fall 1983, and Rydell got the assistance of the Tennessee Valley Authority to divert water from a nearby dam to film the flooding scenes. The authenticity is there on screen in every aspect, well, except in the casting of Mel Gibson as Tom Garvey, the head of the family. Gibson at the time was known as Mad Max, and for his somewhat decent role as an Australian journalist in The Year of Living Dangerously. The River was to be his first major American film, and though he pretty much handles the accent well, he just sticks out like a sore thumb among the actors who look like they've lived their entire lives on a farm. Gibson's hair looks too good, his skin is just too perfect, and you just don't believe he comes from a generation of farmers. Scott Glenn, on the other hand, who plays the movie's villain, fits into the film very well. And it would have been better to cast Scott Glenn in the lead role. When you see Scott Glenn in scenes with Sissy Spacek, you believe that these two could be a married couple. As for Spacek, she was another one of those actors who you believe completely could play a farmer's wife and someone who could make a great pie and drive a tractor. The score, like Spacek, is a perfect fit for the film as composed by John Williams. It runs just about 30 minutes, and the notable thing about it is its lack of a big, brassy feel that was part of his scores for the past seven years. Williams digs back into his jazz background as well for a few key musical scenes. Williams took just a few weeks in July and August to write the score, some of which he completed in Boston. And his recording schedule had to be the shortest in his career. He got all of the music performed and recorded in the last two days of August, 1984. He wasn't under much stress, though, because The River was not slated for release until December, but the film featured a lot of post-production work in the sound department, and Rydell and his crew was able to take the time to make sure the music got its due over the sound effects. Now, I have to say something before we get into the discussion of this score. If you have not seen the film and only know the score from hearing it on the various commercial releases, you should know that what you hear on the CD or the LP is pretty much a re-recording of the score. Very little of the actual film score can be found on the commercial releases, and some of the music I play on this episode will come from the film version. However, a couple of little birds told me that a new CD release of the film score is in the works, and that's good news. So, in this score, Williams uses very earthy, rural instrumentation for the bulk of the score, especially with the acoustic guitar and flute. What I found interesting is that the theme that he composed for the river itself is played mostly on the flute. You might think it's a weird choice of instrumentation, given the destructive power of the river in this film. But in the moments we hear this theme, the river itself isn't very threatening. That main opening credits music gives us a sense of a serene and pleasant introduction to the Tennessee Valley, where the story takes place. We get our first shot of the river, and Williams plays that on the flute as we see a boy fishing in the river as the rain comes suddenly. Flute solos in the film were performed by Jim Walker, who spent many years before his work on the river as the principal flutist for the Los Angeles Philharmonic. When it came time to work on the river, he was considering leaving the Philharmonic for life as a freelancer. Williams scooped him up for the river at the right time. The solo guitar you heard in the opening was played by someone who, unlike Jim Walker, logged plenty of hours working with Williams. Tommy Tedesco had worked with Williams for many years, with one of his most famous solo works coming in the Sugarland Express back in 1973. Tedesco's guitar solos get a lot of prominence in the river, and that is likely due to Williams' familiarity with Tedesco as a performer. After the very earthy and organic opening music, John Williams brings in the electric drum kit for the scene in which Tom Garvey, played by Mel Gibson, is saved from drowning when the bulldozer he is using to scoop up the mud topples over. The music continues as the family saves animals in the barn. For those who prefer Williams' louder scores, this is as close to action music as you're going to get in this film.
0: Put it in my
1: room. The main melody you heard there is what I'm identifying as the family theme, and it's my favorite theme of the film. To my ears, it plays as a series of triplets that get a wonderful lift up the chromatic scale. It's played very boldly in the rescue scene, but throughout the film it will be portrayed more on Tommy Tedesco's guitar to convey the country setting. And that setting is heard and seen very well in a scene in which the daughter, Beth, is learning to ride a pony. The family theme gets a wonderful performance on the guitar with percussion tapping away underneath. It'll segue to a brief playing of the river theme as we transition to a new scene. This scene is where we could have gotten that Aaron Copeland feel that Williams tapped into for the Reavers and the Cowboys, but instead Williams finds his own voice with this track. There's a scene in which SpaceX character May gets her arms stuck in the tractor gears. It's a mildly tense scene that has no music in it in the final version. And if the CD release of the score is to be believed, Williams composed a brooding piece for the scene with dramatic piano hits in a couple of places. Good choice by Williams and Rydell to leave music out of this scene. It's dramatic enough without it, and I think with the music added in, it would have been over the top. And there is a love theme in the film, and it comes in a scene where Tom and May are in a motel getting, well, reacquainted after Tom's long absence while working in an iron factory. Tom talks about having a dream about the river, and then he talks about its strength, Williams gives us the river's theme in the flute, suggesting an innocence that masks its destructive power. And here comes the love theme. The music for this scene is on the soundtrack as the first two minutes of Love Theme from the River. The trumpet solos are played by Warren Luenig, who played trumpet on The Lawrence Welk Show in the 1960s and was mostly known for his talents as a jazz trumpet player. In some circles, he was viewed as an equal to Louis Armstrong. Another piece of music from the film that is featured entirely on the soundtrack is the moment Tom comes home after working in the Iron Factory. The music has a celebratory urgency to it, and the family theme gets full play. And enjoy these flute runs coming up as well. Another storm comes into the valley, this one just as strong as the first one, but the rains stop before too much damage can be done. That is, until Scott Glenn's character hires homeless people to destroy the levee that was just built. Tom tries to use sandbags to stop the rushing water, and Williams comes in with low strings. The music suggests that this will not end well for Tom and his family. The water is just too strong. But things turn hopeful when the homeless people decide to help, and the brass enter for really the first time in the score to give them strength. I dare you to not feel something on that cymbal crash when they put in that final sandbag to stop the flooding. This music closes out the cue named The Ancestral Home on the soundtrack, and it is the greatest musical moment in the film, written to accompany one of the best scenes in the film. It's also one of the more popular cues for John Williams fans, and I could definitely understand why, and I think once you see the film, you'll understand how important this music is. With that scene and Tom's rescue scene earlier in the film, Williams managed to stay away from writing big music action pieces for the film. I don't want to speak out of turn about other composers, but you have to wonder how Williams' colleagues would have approached this film. Would they have insisted on leaving in music during May's incident with the tractor? And would we have heard a villain's theme for Scott Glenn's character? Thank goodness we'll never know. The music branch of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences was extremely impressed with Williams' use of restraint in his score for The River, giving him an Oscar nomination for his work. He found himself nominated in that category twice that year, with Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom also securing a nomination. Both lost to Maurice Jarre's A Passage to India. This was the third time Williams earned two nominations for original score in the same year, something he would do many more times in his career. Another side note about The River is that it was one of the first films to get the PG-13 rating, which was introduced just a couple of months before the release. Go back and listen to the Temple of Doom episode if you don't know the history of the creation of the PG-13 movie rating. So John Williams finished his work on The River, and he had no film work lined up for more than a year. A whole year. But that was through no fault of his own. Steven Spielberg was setting up his next film right after Temple of Doom, and it was to be an adaptation of a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel about a black woman who finds her strength after decades of abuse. It was the color purple, of course, and producer Quincy Jones wanted Spielberg to direct it. And of course, Spielberg started to put his team together once he was hired. He got the same cinematographer from E.T., he got his longtime editor, and he got his producers Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall to work on the film. The one major collaborator that Steven Spielberg was unable to secure was John Williams. Based on what I could gather from Quincy Jones' 2002 autobiography, Jones was first approached to work on The Color Purple as a composer. Then he became a producer at the request of Peter Guber and John Peters. At this point, Spielberg hadn't even been a part of the conversation. So it seems like one of Jones's contract stipulations was to remain the composer for The Color Purple no matter what happened. And there seemed to be no budging on this. So despite not being able to hire him for The Color Purple, Spielberg managed to give Williams some work in 1985, hiring the maestro to work on two episodes of Spielberg's new anthology series, Amazing Stories. For Williams, this would mark a return to episodic TV writing after about 20 years away from it. Though the anthology series was Spielberg's idea, Spielberg only directed two of the 45 episodes that ran from 1985 to 1987, while coming up with story ideas for many others. Williams contributed music to open each episode, and it takes me back to his work on craft mystery theater. Gilbert put all of his energy into making Amazing Stories a hit, but no one watched it, and it was canceled after the 1986-1987 season. After Williams finished composing for Amazing Stories, he took off to Boston for the summer season with the Boston Pops, and all indications were that it was going much smoother than it did in 1984. And it wasn't just an ordinary season. The year 1985 was the 100th year of the Boston Pops, and the organization capitalized on the healed relationship with Williams by commissioning a new concert work for him. It would be the first concert piece Williams would compose since writing the Violin Concerto for his late wife in 1975. The Concerto for Tuba and Orchestra was written specifically for the Boston Pops principal tuba player, Chester Schmitz, and Williams said in an interview that, quote, I've always liked the tuba and even used to play it a little. I wrote a big tuba solo for a Dick Van Dyke movie called Fitzwillie, and ever since I've kept composing for it. It's such an agile instrument, like a huge cornet." And of course you remember, the tuba was a big part of the call signal in Close Encounters of the Third Kind and would be used for Jabba's theme in Return of the Jedi. ORCHESTRA PLAYS After the concerto's debut that summer, Williams had one more assignment with the Boston Pops, stepping up to the conductor's podium for a special recording of the Sergei Prokofiev story, Peter and the Wolf. Actor Dudley Moore was picked as the narrator with the Boston Pops serving as musical accompaniment. On a tall tree sat a short bird.
0: All is quiet, it chirped to Peter, who of course spoke fluent chirp.
1: The performance was released as an album in 1985, with selections from The Nutcracker filling out the LP. Yes, Williams and the Boston Pops released other recordings in previous years that I haven't mentioned. And I only bring up this one because the recording gave John Williams his 27th Grammy nomination, this time in the Best Recording for Children category. This was the first time he would find himself nominated in this category, and it would be the last time. Williams and co-nominee Dudley Moore lost to the soundtrack to the Sesame Street-produced film Follow That Bird. Williams had one more project to complete in 1985 that would become one of his most enduring legacies. NBC came to Williams to give the station's news programs a bolder feel, and certainly much better music than just using their well-known chimes. Well, that's what NBC executives told the media at the time but I'm sure they wanted something that was just as dynamic and attention-getting as the music ABC was using for its nightly news program. Enter John Williams, who said he didn't watch any NBC News shows to understand what was needed. He just put together a piece and used an 80-piece orchestra to record several thematic options for not just the evening news, but for the Today Show and any other news shows on the NBC network. The main piece is called The Mission, And this is what you hear all the time. Only the main theme from the mission and a piece called The Pulse of Events can still be heard on TV. The Pulse of Events became the theme for the long running show Meet the Press. <laughs> Wow. I just love that button Williams puts at the end of that piece. The brass section blasts out a high chord while the basses play a chord in the low register. He's going to do this a lot. It just always gives me chills. As you can tell, John Williams gave us a great deal of new music in 1985, even though none of it was heard in movie theaters. In the next episode of Baton, we'll talk about his return to the movies with his only film assignment of 1986, the comedy action film Space Camp. Until then, please take the time to write a review of this podcast on iTunes. Reviews help the show rise in the Apple Podcast rankings, which gives the show more exposure. And if you would like to contact me, you can always do so through email at jeffswim at AOL.com. As always, I've had a great time discussing John Williams' music with you today. And until next time, the baton is down.